like the adventurous sapphire and steel are stuck in a place between time but Stephen, what if i told you we were all stuck in that place and it was called neoliberal society <laughs> that's right we are here again with lost futures a mark fisher podcast i'm Stephen clut your host and i'm marlo and we're here with our first chapter chapter zero lost futures <laughs> The name of the podcast, and we're going to go over today the first section of the first chapter, the slow cancellation of the future. And what you just heard was the BBC series, Sapphire and Steel. Pretty fun show. Yeah, so this is uh, one of the things that me and Stephen uh, took a gander at after uh, reading the book. As Mark points out in the book, it is all available on YouTube. And basically, you know, long story short, you know, it's sort of Dr. Huey. It's sort of a lot of things. Um, it's a show about time cops. The idea is time, like, creeps into the world and causes mishaps. Uh, those mishaps being, like, in the form of, like, you know, you see someone, like, from you know, the 1600s walking down the suburban street or whatever. And that's a sign of these mishaps in the timeline and these vaguely extraterrestrial, they look like people, but they're clearly not human. Uh, characters, Sapphire and Steel, have to solve these cases of time trouble. Yeah, there's a lot of ghostly images. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of hauntings almost, but... It, yeah, it and, and Mark, Mark points out, like, a lot of the conceit of the show is doing, like, a gothic horror from the Victorian era, but, like, in a modern sci-fi context with sci-fi explanations instead of ghost explanations. Yeah, and the whole show, as the cr series creator says here, came from his desire to write a detective story into which I wanted to incorporate time. Yeah, a real thinker, that guy. <laughs> uh. Anyways, we watched a couple episodes, and it's a pretty fun show. We're starting with this because the book literally does start with this on the first page. And Mark kind of just covers the show as, first of all, he, he's interested in this concept of the last episode, which ends on this cliffhanger where these characters have been trapped in a diner Thing, but the diner is like floating in space sort of like in Rick and Morty but you know it's in this place between time and you know the whole 
thrust of this book is looking at this idea of a place between time, a place where time is out of joint. What happens to neoliberalism when time is out of joint? Yeah, well, how does neoliberalism really, in many ways, contribute to time no longer functioning the way we're used to? And so that's one reason. Another reason is, as he says... um, you know, he was watching the show for the first time in decades recently when he was writing this book. And, you know, it kind of struck him as an interesting sort of show that you can't really, that you wouldn't make today. And what about when this show was made, allowed for this show to be made? And what about today? It doesn't. And uh, that's kind of another question that he wants to approach with this book. And he uh, addresses it in a number of different ways. He talks about the BBC a lot. He talks about other shows at the same time, some of which we'll get into, some plays, like there were dramas that went on in England that they just showed on the BBC. Like uh, he mentions Harold Pinter, television series that were just dramas that they played. And he also mentions Something we'll get into in a later episode, but the Lacare uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and its sequel, Smiley's People, which will come up later on. There's no way I'm watching Smiley's People. <laughs> so this is all getting to his point that, you know, why can't something like this happen now? And he, he quotes here, it all gets mixed up, jumbled up together, making no sort of sense in your idea of anachronism, because he's mentioning 1925, 1948, all the times are mixing up, and that, in many ways, is the thesis of this book. Right, is essentially these signifiers that are kind of unmoored from their time that we're now being faced with non-contextualized and we're kind of just going through life with these non-contextualized signifiers. Right, and this certainly speaks to, I think, my experience, probably some of your experience with culture, TV, movies, things kind of just repeating, and in a general cultural stagnation, which I think he'll get into in, in later sections of this chapter, but also throughout the book. So I think that's the, the first section, and then I think we can pause it and run you out with another clip. slow cancellation of the future he begins this section discussing bifo noted italian anarchist i think franco 
Bifo Berardi. Who had an essay after the future. It was or, a whole book. Yeah, it was a whole book. Yep. Steve might have read it. I, don't, I read a good portion of it. Where he uh, gives a definition of the future, which is probably fairly important to cover <laughs> it's it's an important concept and it's i think one of the reasons why a lot of this gets confusing for people yeah so uh, i mean i think the long and short of it and i mean if you want to uh, nuance it up a bit essentially the definition of the future we are working with is a hope or vision for a future in the present it is not the actual future it is the concept of the future that people at varying points in time have held. Right. He's not referring to a direction of time. Read, read the quote. I am not referring to a direction of time. I am thinking rather of a psychological perception which emerged in the cultural situation of progressive modernity. The cultural expectations that were fabricated during the long period of modern civilization reaching a peak after the Second World War. These expectations were shaped in the conceptual frameworks of an ever-progressing development, albeit through different methodologies, the Hegelian Marxist methodology of Aufenbung and founding of the new totality of communism, the bourgeois mythology of linear development of welfare and democracy, the technocratic mythology of the all-encompassing power of scientific knowledge, and so on. And so on. And so on. My generation grew up at the peak of this mythological temporalization, and it is very difficult, maybe impossible, to get rid of it and look at reality without this kind of temporal lens. I'll never be able to live in accordance with the new reality, no matter how evident, unmistakable, or even dazzling its social planetary trends. Okay, so without getting us too off track, I mean... Is this kind of a restatement of death of meta narratives? He does play with that in the book a lot. He does mention a lot of because I mean, I mean, what, what's he really saying? Is he's talking about people used to believe in teleology? Yeah, know? they used to believe in uh, you know an overarching progression to life, and now they right. now I they mean, don't. Maybe it was a Hegelian overarching progression, or it was a fascist kind of way to the future under our regime will be different you know in the future i mean i i think it's notable again without getting too off track but uh, it's actually sort of recently become a meme is the concept that um in the show the jetsons george jetson had a three-hour work week Mm -hmm. and like that was you know a a liberal vision of the future and that is certainly no longer like outside of just like crank weirdos who are into you know um the singularity and like computers just doing all the computer stuff and kurtzwell and all that but um it's not a part of mainstream liberalism. Or the idea of progress. I mean, right, right. The idea of progress, yeah, has sort of been subsumed by this concept of... Well, he talks about what is the future then, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that he identifies with the future is futuristic music. Right. And a big thing in this book is 
the idea of futuristic music, which he identifies in the 70s and 80s with Kraftwerk. Among others. Among others, but his big one was, what is the 21st century equivalent of Kraftwerk? And this is where he gets into his thought experiment that, you know, is best not to take too literally, but is the idea of uh, if you... You know, what is today's craft work? What is the thing that you could play for someone that came out after 1995 that would blow their mind? Yeah, and he mentions two pieces of music that were very popular when he was writing this. And the two that he mentions are I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor by the Arctic Monkeys. And he even mentions from this music video how they try to recreate the broadcast of the oh. old gray whistle test in this music video mm. in 1980. And I gotta say, you know... That reminds me of Jet. Jet, which was a direct reference to Paul McCartney. Right. And this, I think he compares it to The Fall, or the post-punk groups from the 80s like The Fall... And I got to say, I got really into the Arctic Monkeys when I was, I, and I thought I was like so much cooler because I was into a British band in 2005. I was like, I was telling all my friends, you got to check out these. This is the new band, the up and coming band, the Arctic Monkeys. When this song first came out, mm -hmm. I was a huge fan. Anyways, digression. Yeah, it remind me of that, uh, Will You Be My Girl? Oh yeah, Jet, the Jet yeah. song. Yeah. Right. Are you gonna be my girl? Yeah. yeah, that song. So, watching the music video today, it does have a bit of what he's talking about, of, like, these were... Right, so I think his point... Aesthetically and production-wise. Okay. I mean, we can also... The second one that he's talking about is Amy Winehouse's Valerie, which was a cover... Yeah, no, it's a great song. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of uh, Crazy by Gnarls Barkley. Yeah, more like that. Anyway. Which is a similar idea. I mean, the, the one thing that he's mentioning with this that he finds fascinating is the idea that, at least in the case of Arctic Monkeys, I feel like with Valerie being that it is a cover, maybe not so much, but um, it's not marketed as a throwback song. This is just what their music sounds like. Yeah, and this is the new music. Right, this is the then new music, and it just sounds like it's from 30 years ago, uh, and it's not oh, this is one of those bands that plays music like it's 30 years ago. It's just, this is what the music sounds like. With the cover idea, I thought reading this, without having researched it, that the Zootons uh, were a 1960s band and she was doing a straight cover of the Zootons. Uh. But as I found out in researching it, they're an indie group from like 2009 okay. and she was doing a throwback version oh, see, of the indie version. Yeah, and I, I thought the whole time after reading this, you know, 
they were the 1960s band and she was covering an update. Yeah, like, okay, okay. So that to me has a little temporality of my own mm-hmm. experience of reading this and listening to it. But then he gets into one of his favorite theorists, one of his favorite Marxist theorists, Frederick Jameson. And Frederick Jameson is going full nostalgia. Yeah, Frederick Jameson, who you might know from Capitalist Realism, if you've read it, from his quote, the uh, is easier to imagine the end of the world. Than it is the end of capitalism. Right, and in this, Mark Fisher is talking about nostalgia mode. Right, and so and this is where he kind of ties them both in. What makes Valerie and the Arctic Monkeys typical of postmodern retro is the way in which they perform anachronism. While they are sufficiently historic-sounding to pass on the first listen as belonging to the period in which they ape, there is something not quite right about them. Discrepancies in texture, results from modern studio and recording techniques mean that they belong neither to the present nor the past, but to some implied timeless era. An eternal 1960s, an eternal 80s. This classical sound, its elements now serenely liberated from the pressures of historical becoming, can now be periodically buffed up by new technology. So, you know, this gets back into the original Sapphire and Steel thing that he was playing with, which is this place between time as not belonging to any time and just being... Timeless. Just being pure signifier, just being pure reference without context. And like this sort of timelessness coming from almost confusion. Yeah, and And that is creating confusion. And that is a Frederick Jameson's concept of nostalgia mode of this sort of thing of using these signifiers from an era, but without the context of that era that created them. Yeah, and he goes into it in his example of Body Heat, Jameson's version of this, which is a it film... It was Arctic Monkeys for Jameson. Yeah, it was. It, I mean, I saw a clip of it, and it does have that Glenn Miller kind of big yeah, band. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's 1980s neo-noir. It was like a whole yeah. genre in the 80s that uh, Frederick Jameson in 1981 was like, what the fuck is this? At the and, same time as Mark Fisher was like, Sapphire and Steel, what the fuck is this? <laughs> right, but, you know, now we know that it's 80s neo-noir, you dummy. Um, nah, I love Jameson. Fucking confusing-ass motherfucker, but... I love them. And also, for something uh, that more of our audience would know that isn't Body Heat, there's Star Wars. Uh, which, which is, is the second reference to Star Wars in the Right, in which this is, chapter. I mean, Jameson's more reference that you guys would know. But, you know, essentially, yeah, it's a Buck Rogers movie, but without Buck Rogers, without the low budget, in fact, with a very high budget, with a very high technology that kind of obfuscates... The fact that this is just referential and pastiche, which is Jameson's favorite thing, but uh, it uses newness only in service to preserving the old Mm -hmm. rather than creating the new. It has the technology to do special effects and stuff, but they're only to make a cooler Buck Rogers movie than the original Buck Rogers movie could be. Yep, and... Moving on from that, he goes back to music. So he he's jumping back and forth from like theorist 
music, theorist music, which is kind of what you get into when you're getting into Fisher. If you've read Zizek, this is like fine. I mean, Zizek's the truly like schizophrenic writer, pure. <laughs> One thing to another. With Fisher, I mean, this is positively slow paced. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and he gets into Simon Reynolds, who is a very important figure for Fisher. Uh, he gave one of the quotes for this book, and he's, as it says here, author of Retromania and Rip It Up and Start Again. He's a very influential, like, NME writer or The Wire from Britain. And he comes up a lot more in the later musical because he basically brought back the term hauntology. Right, which we will be getting get to into shortly. Somewhat shortly. But um, yeah, I mean, he basically is the one that applied hauntology to this sort of new music criticism. Which is effectively what Fisher then formalized more. So it's not actually Derrida to Fisher, it's Derrida to Simon Reynolds to Fisher. Right. So he is a very important figure if you want to understand Fisher. And also rather indicative that many of Fisher's influences were being kind of a weird kid growing up in 80s England. Exactly. And... Yeah, there's a lot of Simon Reynolds all throughout this book, and we'll keep coming back to him, keep coming back to him. Kind of comes back to Berardi again. So he kind of brings it all together and says, you know, this concept of the future that Berardi sees as slowly being canceled is indicative of our present moment that I'm writing it, which is like 2013, or a lot of these essays are 2006, 2008, 2009. And he's kind of saying here that, there's one quote in here that he talks about the other explanation for the link between late capitalism and retrospection centers on production. Despite all its rhetoric for novelty and innovation, neoliberal capitalism has gradually but systematically deprived artists of the resources necessary to produce the new. And I think that's a pretty important materialist argument that he takes from Jameson and Berardi, which is like the superstructure of it's difficult to be experimental. And that sort of comes back to his argument about craft work. Like, who is the new craft work and why doesn't a new craft work exist? It's because artists are less incentivized to experiment, and when they do, they're less likely to be phenomenons. Okay, so in a wonderful act of planning these episodes, I think we, uh, if we're going to cover the second explanation, we should cover both the first explanation and what is being explained as well. All right, what's the first? <laughs> so, he says, Why did the arrival of neoliberal post-Fortis capitalism lead to the culture of retrospection and pastiche? So, you know, getting back to Jameson, Jameson, his whole thesis is we live in a society of retrospection and pastiche, which is also sort of Fisher's thesis and... Also, you might be asking yourself, well, then why am I reading Fisher? Then Jameson already exists. So this is why. So he wants to answer why. Why is this? Why do we live in this era? 
uh, from late capitalism. And also further, he wants to elaborate on, you know, what's happened since Jameson, et cetera, et cetera. So the first thing is consumption. So, yeah, that's very appropriate. The second was uh, production. The first, he's going with consumption. Could it be that neoliberal capitalism's destruction of solidarity and security brought about by compensatory hungering for the well-established and familiar? Paul Virilo has written of polar inertia that is a kind of effect of and counterweight to the massive speeding up of communication. Uh, so yeah, like technology is going faster and therefore more things are produced so less things are innovative. Right, of. right. Yeah, essentially is one of his things. And then as you said, the other thing is... Austerity, basically. Yeah, austerity leaves a lot less resources for working class creativity. All right, I think that's a good right. section. The legitimacy of what you're constructing. In that case, deconstructing the subject if there is such a uh, uh, thing, would mean first to analyze historically, historically in a, in a genealogical way, uh, the formation and the, the different layers which have uh, built, so to speak, a concept. Every concept has, a, has its own history, and the concept of subject has a very, very long heavy and complex history. Uh, for, first, for instance, in English, in the English tradition, philosophical tradition, the word subject uh, is not used the same way, or sometimes it's not used as a, as a canonical concept. The way it is used in continental philosophy, in German philosophy, in, in French philosophy. So first we have to translate Alright, so we just listened to Derrida saying a bunch of Derrida stuff. Well, it's one of the only ones in English. He mostly speaks in French, but yeah, Jacques Derrida, the French philosopher that is the end of Western civilization, according to some people. So I should key you in that we are tackling the section, Why Hauntology? Mark Fisher starts his section out, uh, appropriately enough, explaining why he never quite liked Derrida, stating that he mostly got into Derrida through writers from NME he really liked and found Derrida himself to be disappointing after having read those writers talk about Derrida. But he eventually comes around to the concept of hauntology from Spectres of Marx. Spectres of Marx, which is a pretty important book for Derrida from 1994 called full title of Spectres of Marx, The State of the Debt, The Work of Mourning, and The New International. And it's really a response to Francis Fukuyama's The End of History. And it's written as sort of a polemic or just a response to it, but also as a kind of literary musing on Hamlet and Marx and this idea that ghosts of Karl Marx's writing are going to always haunt capitalism now that capitalism has quote-unquote won the Cold War. And that no matter how much triumphalism there is, that the critiques of Marxism are always going to be this ghostly presence that is always going to follow capitalism despite its disavowal and um, 
dismissiveness of Marxism and communism that the critiques are going to still be valid. And and I mean, I think also, and he gets into this with ontology of the idea of the not yet, that it's not just the loss of communism, but the future that might not necessarily be communism is also one of the things that kind of is actively present now. Right. So he basically says uh, of hauntology that it's a progression from earlier Derrida ideas of deference as well as uh, the trace. But unlike those things, it very explicitly uh, brings in the question of time. And he points out, as you did in Derrida's uh, playing with Hamlet, he oft repeats the phrase in the book, uh, time is out of joint. Which kind of relates back to what we've been talking about, Sapphire and Steel, yeah, and the nostalgia this, mode. Right, This he's building on this idea of being unmoored from time and kind of coming to Derrida's ontology as sort of this synthesis of these ideas. And it synthesizes in some ways Mark Fisher's thesis of... The reason we can't imagine a future in art or in music or in films or in BBC series, the reason why we can no longer have that is because of a political superstructure that is working against experimentation right, right. and creativity. And that, that's having the effect of, I mean, we don't have a present, so we can't imagine a future. I mean, it's this whole general idea of time is out of joint, the place between the time and so forth. And the word hauntology, I didn't mention it, is it's haunt and ontology, and it's sort of a pun on this where the H is silent uh, in French. And so if you say in French, ontology is the same as ontology which is hauntology and so i think fisher likes this even if he's resistant to derrida as a as a thinker overall right and okay so this is a actually a section he talks about that i think is very fisher and it's actually the reason i got the weird and the eerie out because it's absolutely a central concept to that weird in the eerie for people that don't know is mark fisher's posthumous third book after this one only three yeah 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 so anyway uh which we will be covering in a later season so he says you know is hauntology just some figure of speech is it just a pun the way out of this unhelpful opposition is to think of hauntology as the agency of the virtual the specter which is the concept of hauntology because you know we're talking about being because it's ontology but we're also talking about the being of this figure of the specter the specter in this case he's defining it as not something supernatural but of that which acts without physically existing you know and in that i mean he you know actually discusses that with eeriness and his concept of eerie that he covers in a different book but um you know the idea of even in that book, he, he mentions the idea of capitalism seemingly acting without any conscious direction. 
you know, it's, yeah, it's echoes of Marx, a bunch of music shit. <laughs> well, that's that's the bridge to right. where we're going to talk about it next, yeah, yeah. which is the way it was applied by NME writers is in what ended up being called the genre of hauntology, hauntological music, which is, he names a bunch of artists, William Basinski, Basinski, the Ghost Box label, the Caretaker, Burial, Mordant Music, Philip Jack, all of whom we're going to get to in a later section of the book, but especially Burial and the Caretaker. He, he does interviews with both, and that'll be in a later section. But the main thing is that he takes away from this hauntology music is that all of the music is haunted by past technology and liter like the past, but that it incorporates it with this, you know, this timeless quality of his big thing is crackle, like the crackle of a vinyl being artificially placed into a digital place. And to him, all of these bands or dub artists or electronic music artists are trying to all kind of use these tools to make it seem like this is a lost future, which is the name of this podcast. Yeah, well, I will play us out to one of the bands he mentions, which is The Caretaker, uh, Leland Kirby's album, which epitomizes all of this it's called uh, sadly the future is no longer what it was and to him this is this is the hauntological music that sort of haunts the rave what he calls the the dance music of the 1990s this triumphant belief in capitalism and now the 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 belief in the future of capitalism and now it is just haunted depressing fucking music So our last, well, second to last section is not giving up the ghost. If you're following around, it's on page 22 in the book version. In this version, he talks about melancholy. And he uh, basically lays out a definition of what he calls hauntological melancholy, uh, which he does so by first uh, discussing... Freud's idea of mourning versus melancholia, uh, where mourning for Freud was the slow and painful withdrawal of libido from lost object, and melancholia, the libido remains attached to that which has disappeared, uh, which Derrida, inspectors of Marx, uh, got interested in uh, because he basically identifies 
that attachment to this absence as the specter of a hauntological being. He links it with capitalism in a very interesting way. Capitalist society can always heave a sigh of relief and say to themselves, communism is finished. But it did not take place. It was only a ghost. Um, going forward, Mark Fisher talks about failed mourning. Haunting is like a failed mourning. Like the ghost never left. It keeps coming back and coming back. Which that's sort of what Derrida said in Factors, uh, because he was talking a lot about this idea of a philosophical exorcism and needing to get rid of the ghost in order to mourn for that which is gone. And so this is sort of the connection. Yeah, and he says that 21st century hauntology is not the disappearance of a particular object, but it's rather like a particular way of life, seems like, or modernism, a type of popular modernism that is lost or disappearing. And he then goes on to distinguish this type of melancholia from two other types of melancholy. Um, left melancholy. Well, uh, let's actually hang on this for a little bit. So just to kind of bring that all together with specters and with where we're at now, uh, that popular modernism, that tendency to believe in this post-communist triumphalism, basically has given way to none of the progressive promises of modernism have really been fulfilled. Right. And that's sort of the specter that is haunting us, is these unfulfilled visions that we once had that have now kind of disappeared. Yeah, and he says that this is this book is a collection of things in culture that are shaped this disappearance, you know, and, and this will get later into like Joy Division or uh, BBC series or, you know, all these different things that he's kind of collected over his life that he says here are like the ghosts of his life. That is the disappearance of the promises of popular modernism. Yeah, yeah. So he goes on to now distinguish this from two different kinds of modernism. Melancholia. Or, sorry, melancholia. <laughs> um, the first being Left Melancholy uh, by Wendy Brown. To me, this just kind of sounds like doomerism, the idea that the left has failed, we're never going to see a communist revolution, there's no hope in trying anymore. I mean, Steve, I think you might have read a little bit of Wendy Brown. Yeah, he, he mentions Wendy Brown. Wendy Brown, if you don't know, is the partner of Judith Butler. Oh, okay. She is a pretty uh, notable theorist in her own right. She has a number of books and an early thinker of the quote-unquote post-left mm -hmm. that Mark Fisher's distinguishing himself from, but also draws from occasionally to, yeah, I mean, to criticize. Well, I mean, he's certainly within left accelerationism, which is sort of also part of that yeah. whole mess. And Wendy Brown here is, he, he quotes from the essay, uh, Resisting Left Melancholy. Basically what you said, that, you know, we should resist this 
doomerism because the ghost is always going to come back, you know? Uh, I mean, in this case, this is not what hauntological melancholy right. is. Right, and left melancholy is kind of the opposite, which she's saying to resist. Right. And then I guess the last one being Postcolonial Melancholia by Paul Gilroy, which seems to just be British people being sad that they're not a real country anymore. Well, yeah, it's specifically like an empire. An empire has fallen or an empire has been decolonized as in the case of... He'll get into this later with kind of Afrofuturism and the idea of like how do we establish a type of transatlantic connection between America, which is now more powerful than Britain, and the diverging African experiences that were, Mm -hmm. you know, part of the colonizing experience, or victims of the colonizing experience. But, uh, yeah, a loss of fantasy of omnipotence. Yeah, basically, you're no longer an empire anymore. And, uh, as he says, another example of white boy winging over lost privileges. Whinging? Whinging? If anyone knows English, <laughs> let us know what that word is. Winging or whinging? Whing- I think it's whinging. Whinging? Is it a weird way of saying whining? <laughs> whining white boys. Um, so yeah, that's that section. And, uh... We'll play out some more um, Leland Kirby's to... Be sad, too. Be sad. Sadness. Hauntologically sad, too. So, the uh, last section, Nostalgia Compared to What? Uh, This is where Mark Fisher anticipates and answers the criticism that hauntology is just him being a cranky old man. I mean, I sort of jokingly said this, but I think it's pretty accurate to what he's saying. Uh, He's kind of saying it's not nostalgia because I'm actually right. We did, in fact, lose something that we once had, and it sucks that we lost this thing we once had, and I wrote a whole book to tell you why I'm right. That's basically, like, what he's saying. He's, like, essentially this argumentum ad modernism that, you know, the present is must be better than the past. Uh, you can't just call everything that disagrees with that nostalgic, per se. Yeah, I mean, that's that's basically his... Yeah, I mean, he points to a couple of different things. For one thing, the 70s are very important to him and this book as seemingly the last time before neoliberalism took over the airwaves, so to speak. And that that, he'll get into it later, but that was for him, like, the revolution that could have been in the post-war era. You know, people point to 68... But for him, it seems like the last chance was the 70s. And that revolution could have been, you know, and he views it through all these kind of cultural things like music, you know. and Right. Yeah, so I think uh, one thing that he takes the time to point out that should be pointed out is when he says, 
you know, we legitimately lost a certain mode of being. He's kind of using popular modernism as a descriptor for that. Uh, he is not saying everything about the world was better back then. Right. He's saying we lost something that we now don't have and that sucks and we should talk about that you know first of all he he kind of makes the point of we could have had that mode of being and it could have been the 2010s and we could have had the internet and stuff there's nothing tied to neoliberalism that means you need to have neoliberalism before the internet and likewise we could have overcome or gotten to the place we're at now versus the 1970s in terms of racism sexism homophobia etc that again there is nothing about neoliberalism that requires uh we had neoliberalism before we could start to fight against those things we could have had that and popular modernism a environment for working class creative participation in society and he says specifically that there is something revolutionary about the way that people have faced down oppression and you know racism sexism but that that didn't need to be a trade-off right he specifically is arguing here against the neoliberal notion that neoliberalism sure it took things away from you but it also gave you things and he's very specifically arguing against that notion and i think that's sort of important to his explanation as to why he's not doing nostalgia to to basically say that no i acknowledge there are good things about today i refuse to acknowledge they are because of rather than in spite of the neoliberal world order right and he ends the essay kind of reflecting back on his own ghosts he says the book is about the ghosts of my life so there is necessarily a personal dimension to what follows and that's why we're gonna learn about bbc sci-fi shows from the 80s and he, he links this specifically with his depression and he says that depression is the most malign specter that has dogged my life and i use the term depression to distinguish the dreary solipsism of the condition the more lyrical and collective desolations of hauntological melancholia And then he goes to say that he started blogging in 2003 in such a state of depression that I found everyday life scarcely bearable. And uh, it seems like these blog posts were really important for him to have connection with people. And this book, in a lot of ways, is a collection of those blog posts. Mm -hmm. And so it's cobbling together... is you know ghosts of his life each each chapter is kind of a thing that he's collected that he wants to share with everybody and explain why it was important to him and why he's mourning its loss or in a state of melancholy holding on to those objects that he's picked up along the way mm-hmm. well i think we should play out one more and then come back and say goodbye yeah, i think right. that'd be Or not come back, just say goodbye now. I think we can, we can do a little wrap up. No? Yeah, let the ambience ambient out. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, this is our first chapter. Hope you like it. 
Uh, come support us on Patreon. Uh, we'll be getting more extra material up on Patreon for anybody who's interested in supporting us and enjoy the sounds. Enjoy the rest of the season. Thank you.